Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Good. You could start with that. <laughs> the water bottle. That's just good audio. Do I need to take it away from you, Jason? That is live audio of uh, me, my ears steaming <laughs> upon hearing the 18th narration that is yeah. just reiterating what a character said. Okay. <clears throat> uh, seat of our pants. Um, <coughs> I can bullshit from the Wikipedia plot summary if we want, or we don't even sure. have to do a plot summary. Uh, the plot summary is very, very basic. We can, cool. you can take it, and we can fill in the gaps if you Sweet. like. Are we gonna? Are you gonna say stats like directed, <coughs> and produced by? Uh, if you've got them in front of you, we can do that, or you can do that. You handle I didn't the get stats. You're like together. a stats man. I'll handle the plot. I'm like a plot okay. man. I'll pull up the. I got it. Stits. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love, another roundtable podcast about movies we saw at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. My name is Jason. I'm Nick Cranspottom. Thank you for joining us again, Nick. I'm Cody. And I'm Harry. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the 1948 Jules Dessin film, The Naked City, uh, which we saw last night at the Trilon. It was paired with Brute Force, which will be coming later because I didn't see it. Arbitrarily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I was told that you, by you guys that... Brute Force is actually better? It is. It is. Considerably. It is super... In my opinion. Super good. Not so, to spoil what we're about to talk about. That's the second double feature <clears throat> that I've regretted not going to. Uh, first having been when they were doing... Wild at Heart. And Wild at Heart and Raising Arizona. I ended up seeing Raising Arizona later, but... You talked about it on the pod. You can check out that episode at some point. It was a while ago. You want to take it away for it? You want to go? <laughs> You're really landing this one, right? Just straight down the straight and straight and narrow. What? He's he's back That's on the wagon. That's all the time we got today, folks. Thank hit you it. So much for listening to the, the Naked City. You want to hit us with some stats? Uh, sure. I mean, it was like you said, 1948, directed by Jules Dassin, produced by Mark Hellinger, Hellinger, <coughs> Hellinger uh, which is uh, important because he's also the narrator of the movie, and he calls himself the producer at the top, so we get to hear his voice quite a bit. Uh, based on a story by Melvin Wald, screenplay by Albert Maltz and Melvin Wald, starring Barry Fitzgerald, Howard Duff, Dorothy Hart, Don Taylor, and a bunch of other uh, extras. Cinematography by William H. Daniels, edited by Paul Weatherfa- Weatherwax. Weatherwax, that's a great name. <laughs> Distributed by Universal. 96 minutes long. Uh, English was the primary language. It was made in the United States of America, and it made $2.4 million at the box office. Against it was a success. Kind of, against what kind of budget? I will pull up the budget. $8. Put me on the spot like that. Wikipedia doesn't have a budget. It does not. Column. God, I'm good it, at this. It should have. Like, right below the box office? I mean, you can pull up Wikipedia, my dude. Maybe they don't yeah, hold it. They, they don't have it for this. Wait, production. Mm. Oh, uh, Mark Hellinger died. Uh, at 44 of a heart attack 
<coughs> after reviewing the final cut of this movie. So this was the final film he was involved with, which Ouch. is too was bad. This, which one came first, Brute Force or this? Brute Force came out a year later. Yeah. yeah. For some reason, I thought these were like a decade apart, but they were one year apart. It's interesting. Release. They're very, very different movies. Was, um, was Mark a narrator for this one, too? For Brute Force? Yeah. No, he was no. Okay. okay. He was deceased at that point. Okay, because I feel, I feel like the poster said he tells, it, tells the prisoner story his way or whatever. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, the Trilon poster says that Mark Hellinger tells Brute Force his way or something. Yeah, through the, 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 the prisoner's eyes or something There's like no that. narration in Brute Force. Oh, uh, very different film. Because it's a, like a good movie oh, that, huh. does, you know, doesn't rely on <laughs> really, really canned bullshit to make its point. Before we get way too far into the plot, which Harry's going to have a fun time describing for us. No, Cody <laughs> no. is going to have a fun time describing for Hello. us. Uh, I should set out, like, the battle lines are drawn. I liked this movie. I liked uh, Naked, The Naked City. I also liked it. Nick, it's the Nick and Jason versus It is Harry Team and Cody uh, Nick and Jason versus Team, team Naked right Shitty. Team versus Team Wrong. Yeah, Naked Shitty. Team, team, team Jick? Team Hody? Or... No, we're Kit. we're team naked shitty. Cody already is dead. I already made oh. the shirts. So, um, shit, I didn't have time to think of a better one. Uh, you can the, be team the Nate, the Nate, the Nate Good City. I don't know. Maybe we should just. Start I don't know. Over. I, it's your name. I'm just here throwing you. No, I. From a high level perspective, uh, Cody and I were talking about this a little bit. This is an interesting movie because it's not one that I found offensive. <coughs> um, I found it merely bad. Um, usually, when I find a movie bad it's because it does something that is actually like legitimately onerous to me like something that i think that that is forwarding a a negative idea or a a bad Mm -hmm. thought something like uh three billboards outside of ibbing missouri which is famously my least favorite movie which i also hated yeah which i mean but that's an evil movie Mm -hmm. right like this is not an evil movie right the most uh that like you could maybe say is that there's some uh, I think as you put it, finger wagging yeah. towards like frivolous lifestyles. Like, There's a kind little of bit of sensibilities. like 1940s, uh, like moralistic finger wagging in this movie that makes it feel conservative to me. Um, well, which is it's frustrating. It's a cop movie, right? Yeah, of course it's going to be like moralizing. Not to say that that excuses it, but like it's 1948. And I mean, Maltese Falcon cops. came out when. Are we really comparing Maltese Falcon to anything? Maltese Falcon is an, is an incredible movie. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's I like mean, that, you said it's you like liked that, this movie. It's like that time yeah. on the Sunshine episode when I compared the set design to Aliens, yeah. and you're like, that's such a dipshit thing to say, because <laughs> Alien is one of the best designed and best made films of all time. Yeah, that does sound compare, like me. If you compare the Naked City against fucking Stray Dog, you're going to have a really bad time. <laughs> I, that's funny, because I did. Uh, in the movie theater, I was like, huh, this is basically a Kur- Kurosawa's Stray Dog. It even opens on the hottest day of the year the same way, which How, is wild. You're comparing elements of its plot, or its quality uh it's plot certainly. okay there that's is, that's where i was yeah well that that's i mean I was that, that was what was so depressing about it right is that like an hour into this movie i was like wow what if i was watching stray dog and i was like remember what a good movie <laughs> that is anyway Listen uh, to sorry i don't want to be super negative about this movie that was a little all, too late for that that was all preface <laughs> to say like i just merely find this to be a bad movie uh and i think the reason it's bad is because it's sort of central thesis on how to make a movie is one that i think is misguided uh we'll talk about it Right now on the pod. Yeah. <laughs> Tell sure. us what happened in this movie. Go sure. Ahead. I'll do my best. We begin with an awkward narration and a montage of New York City. Um, we get uh, we hear the thoughts of some passerbys. Uh, pass- passersby? Passersby. Passersby. Uh, 
strangers in the city. Uh, some characters that we follow for the rest of the movie kind of float in there too. Um, and then we begin. After, <laughs> we begin secondly with a, a murder of one Gene Dexter. Uh, we see this murder take place, uh, and that's kind of the framework for the rest of the movie. We're solving this case. This. Um, as uh, Lieutenant Muldoon calls it, a very heavy case. Um, we meet various suspects. We follow their kind of threads throughout the film. We meet uh, Gene Dexter's parents, um, lovers, uh, associates, co-workers. Um, she's has a lot of attention thrown at her because she's a uh, notorious, within the city, city anyway, a, a dress model. Um, she's very young and attractive uh, in that maybe contributes to the heaviness of the case because she has so many suitors and so many uh, different parties who may have an interest in in offing her. Uh, we eventually uh, follow that all that to a um, an ex-wrestler, uh, harmonica playing ex-wrestler named Willie Garza. Uh, and um, he, uh, spoiler alert, he meets his demise uh uh, after they uh, they crack the case, and um, and that's that's one of the many stories told within the confines of the the naked city. Yeah, I think the, mo- the movie ends with there are six million stories, in, or is it eight million? It's I mean, eight, eight million. million. It's eight million. Because there are eight million people in, in the city. city. We only hear that eighteen times, yeah. which I I still forgot it. So maybe they should have said it again. <laughs> uh, and this the, was one of them. This was yeah. This was but one. Um, the big thing about this movie that is touted from the poster to the intro and everything is, and it's a weird intro because, like you said, uh, it addresses the audience directly, in, outside of character, and yet, yeah. like he then flits and talks to the cam to the right. to the film it, at multiple points. Yeah, it's not even like a maybe more. It feels weird saying something's traditional when this movie came out in 1948, but like traditional third wall breaking because it's not like a character talking from the grave or to the audience but it's a producer of the film talking like who's fully removed from the plot talking to the viewer um which was really kind of strange yeah i think that you like you said that's like the movie's bit Mm -hmm. right like it's uh for sure from the from the very beginning literally the first thing you see is the city and then mark hellinger says like hi i'm producer mark hellinger and like I'm and he lists be... off the exact, like, the, almost the full credits of the film. Like, he talks about the editing and the shooting and the cinematography to, down to the directing. And, like, I'm the I'm the executive producer of this joint. There's a really thing. weird moment. He was like, uh, Barry Fitzgerald plays Lieutenant Muldoon. Hopefully he gets nominated for an Oscar this year. <laughs> Guess you'll have to wait and see, audience. <laughs> uh, but he also, <clears throat> he, frames, uh, he frames the narration as the selling point, right? Where he says, mm-hmm. like, this is a movie that's going to be a little bit different. Um... The other thing about this movie, which is actually really cool, is that, um, <clears throat> as Mark points out, uh, it's filmed on location in New York. Uh, a- apparently, the extras are actual New York people. He said, "I don't think that's true." There are a lot of cases in which they're pro- like there were a f- few featured extras, like in the uh, dress shop scene uh, where there's like a sassy conversation going on between two girls, and then there's. Um, Many other times where clearly people were like actors and actresses mix in with real New Yorkers. But I, yeah, like the fact that it does set its story there and that it's filmed, like actually filming thousands and thousands of real people just going about their day to day lives was a big selling point of the movie. I wonder how essential that is versus just a neat thing that the movie does. It, well, especially for its time, I'm sure it was revolutionary. Um, he, I mean, he said that, that we didn't film this on a soundstage. And contextually, you get the feeling that that is not 
like that is a very unusual thing for this time. Uh, there, the movie opens with several um, actual like helicopter shots. I believe it's they could have been on a plane, um, like overlooking the city, yeah. and it looks gorgeous. And uh, you again, I got the feeling that like those are very unusual uh, shots to see, especially um, in. 1947, right? Like, that's unheard of at the time, so I think that's a big selling point of this movie as well. And it's supposed to fit into this larger framework of this movie as, like, cinema verite, right? Like, it's supposed to be like, oh, this is like... No, this is like a real story. Like, you're... The the audience is supposed to have a different relationship with this story than they would with most movies where you're supposed to get the idea that this is somehow more real or more grounded in the realities of what New York is. We're supposed to be seeing a real story. But then it goes back on that many times throughout the movie to, like, directly interrupt and interject Hellinger's uh, narration, where he, like, explicitly states what's going on, where he sort of uh, comments uh, and chafes at different things that people are doing on screen at any given time. I really liked that. I, it seems like that's one of the things that didn't hit you and Cody so well. That uh, is one of the things I actually disliked. You didn't like that? No. I, 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 I don't it know. Felt... It created, like, a communal feeling to me. Like, hey, I'm watching the movie with you, and I know more than you. Sort of like a, uh, a yeah, dramatic irony. Yeah, but he's also kind of criticizing every move that the characters do in a way that just well, feels he's the producer. Really... It's his job. <laughs> it just feels very... Uh, I, I don't know. Harry... Uh, brought up a good point last night that it's like uh, it's as if he thinks you're too stupid to watch a movie and he's trying to tell you how to watch it I am and I do need that <laughs> so I think that Jason your point you said in your letterbox review follow Jason on letterbox uh, Nintendovis right that's your at on uh, yeah. letterbox uh, you called it a farce um, I don't think that this movie is going for a farce but I really okay. like that reading of it um, legitimately, like yeah. I think that's a really good point. I think that, that that sort of saves the movie from itself if you can interpret it as something that's just sort of like funny and a joke. That's, where, that's where I felt the movie was going the whole time. There are just way too many <clears throat> excuse me, narrative and plot elements that are just too fucking stupid to be like part of a real hard-boiled uh, noir. Like, every cop is the dumbest motherfucker in this entire... Like, every, from the from the, wizen, from the wizened old uh, Irishman to the young 20, 26 years old guy, like, they state his age, and he he's not 26 no. in this movie. Nope. He's easily, like, breaching 40. Uh, but, like, from the top to the bottom, everybody is the stupidest shit. Like, they learn that um, Garza is uh, a wrestler. No, they... They actually get to him. The lead that they follow to get to him, just for reference, is that uh, this lead detective finds a beat cop who once arrested one of his like compatriots and says, did you arrest anybody else with him? He's like, no, this guy got away. He threw a chair through a glass window, jumped out, got up like a cat and ran away. Guy's really acrobatic. And they're like, oh, we're looking for an acrobat. <laughs> and then they're like, he's really strong, too. We're looking for a wrestler. And then they look for a wrestler who's acrobatic, and who likes to play the harmonica? And that's all that they go on for like weeks. It's uh, the funniest thing. Harry leaned over to me during the harmonica bit and said, "Like, great point, Chekhov's harmonica." <laughs> but that wasn't the case. No, <laughs> because when we come upon, uh, we're jumping all over the, or I'm jumping all over the no, place. Please. But when we come to Very his apartment, there's somebody in like a neighboring room that's playing the violin mm -hmm. or something. 
Yeah, that was like a funny misdirection, I feel I, like. like. Because it was like there was a fiddle. It yeah. was Chekhov's fiddle instead of the harmonica. I guess. I would have loved to have heard, hear someone play the harmonica awesomely. I feel deprived of that. People did talk about how good he was at the harmonica. Right. They did talk that up. Well, I mean, the, the kids got, <clears throat> loved it, apparently. I, that, to me, <laughs> felt like that specific little plot connection, that plot thread, was because he needed to go to the kids to, to, so that they'd have a reference. Because if he tells them, do you know of a big, scary man who walks through here sometimes? The kids say, no, I don't know who, who uh, Mr. Garza is. And then he's like, oh, he likes to play the harmonica. That's their reference. That's why they remember him. That was a weird scene where that police officer just walks onto a playground and starts oh interrogating God. children. And hops over fences to get There's out There's also and shit. A, a really good scene uh, where he talks to a like neighborhood convenience store owner who uh, gives him a root beer or like he buys a root beer from her and then he asks <coughs> her about Garza and he's and she's like yeah he lives across the street uh, he's a good guy who are you anyway and then he like goes over to the phone to report to his superiors and she just stands next to him like well I'm in this now like I'm part of this case now <laughs> that was my favorite scene in the movie uh, because it was a, kind of doing what the movie actually ostensibly says it sets out to do which kind of brings me to my um, <clears throat> counterpoint to your farce argument, I guess. Ding, ding. Which is that, like, I think... Okay. Uh, I think that um, that you could read this movie as a farce, and I think that's a really good reading. I think that reading it as a farce requires it to have this really cynical and um, hateful view of its subjects. And I didn't like that at all. Because you're right, everyone in this movie is stupid, but that's the point. Like, like this producer really is so deeply condescending to his subjects in this movie, to everyone, like, to, to the cops, but also to the people of New York City and to New York City itself. Like, he keeps talking about how, like, this great city, but then, like, every time that they depict a person, it's a person who is out of their depth and corrupted flailing. by New York. Yeah, well, or not even corrupted by New York, I'm just saying incompetent. Like, these are these are people who are, like, who don't, who so pointedly don't have the full picture. Mm-hmm. And then the producer, the actual producer of the movie, steps in to be like, huh, look at this idiot. Like, <laughs> like literally, you see the police walking around and he's like, have you seen a guy who looks like this? Have you seen a guy who looks like this? And he's like, he's like laughing at it. It's like there's, there's like a puck figure in this movie that's like, like over my shoulder laughing about how stupid this movie is. And that didn't work for me at all because it made me uh, sort of like hateful about the experience. It was like, I think you yourself in your letterbox said, like, the movie knows how dumb this all is. Yeah. So my question would be, why the fuck am I watching it then? Like, wh- if if you yourself think that this is a stupid story, why are you telling me this I, story? I guess it's that vibe I get from, and I've never watched Mystery Science Theater, Theater 3000 or any of those podcasts that go, like, uh, along with the movie and, like, comment on it as it's going. I don't even really watch commentary tracks. I generally tend to separate movie from commentary if I can. But the fact that it was baked into this movie, that it's like a, an actual part of, if not the plot, at least of the, how you see it, of creating your lens for it, I just, I don't know, it's it's something that, um, that did increase my enjoyment of the movie. If it didn't have that, if it didn't have like some snide, sneering jackass in the background sort of cracking wise about the whole movie, it would have been a pretty boring and, again, pretty stupid movie, and it kind of is. But yeah. like... 
I guess that shields it from direct criticism. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, though, in many ways. it's fucking cowardice, yeah. right? It's like saying we couldn't make a good movie, so we're going to pretend it's a piss take. We're going like, to like make fun of ourselves enough that we think that what we're doing, or you think what we're doing, is actually being sort of like funny and cute and lampooning the noir genre, when really we just couldn't do any of that. Like, we couldn't tell a good story. So instead, we're just going to like default to this sort of like... Like, oh, we're in on it, too. Mm-hmm. It's this, like, faux irony that I think is... Uh, it didn't work for me. Yeah, Harry, you brought up yesterday that, like, you... Presumably what the filmmakers thought was they realized that there was so little meat on these bones that they decided to throw... I mean, and they threw that voiceover track in just to kind of add something, which, you're right, makes it really difficult to 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 critique... Um, Voiceovers in general are probably uh, having trouble thinking of any counterexamples, but they're just condescending training wheels. Um, I don't think we lose a whole lot by like removing this track. One thing I was thinking about, uh, actually pretty early on, soon after the Gene Dexter murder, and after the narration was very well established, I was thinking like, if you need to have a narration in this mo- in this movie, why not have like the voice of Gene Dexter beyond the grave, like provide that sort of triting of characters that like maybe like you know taunt, yeah, really taunting your enemies yeah. encouraging the police officers like you got to you got to try co- it, the the answers are down there somewhere it's like if it's like if the ghost of Laura Palmer was like critiquing twin <laughs> peaks which that would sounds, be that amazing wild, right uh, this, yeah this was like when we were driving back and we were just doing armchair director uh, where we're like <laughs> hey how would you make this movie better if, if you were Jules Dassan in 1947 <laughs> but i really like that like that sounds great uh, i I think that the reason why that that works for me so well kind of works in with what I was saying too, which is that like that would that would sort of level the playing field, right? Like it would it would become less condescending because it yeah. would become less about being fed an idea about how you're supposed to feel by an outside omniscient force mm-hmm. that's sort of like overseeing. I don't know. Like I just didn't want to have Mark Hellinger in the movie theater with me, yeah, making fun of the movie that he made. Really hard to get remotely invested yes. in the plot, the characters. Anything that's happening because of his narration, it completely takes you out of the movie. Um, and it's also just, I mean, the way he mocks them, it's just, just annoying. I, I still I th- like I th- the I movie. Th- I, th- I thought I th- it was fun. I, no, I, I want to hear more reasons why you like it, but like, just to set my argument forth, I don't have anything else that supports this. <laughs> <laughs> like, laying it all completely naked. I don't have any, like, what Harry's saying, what Harry's saying is true. Is that it does? It talks down to its subjects. It does not do anything to incre- to like increase your relationship with any of the characters or like your investment in the plot. <coughs> uh, but I just I, I I I for the same reasons that Harry and and the rest seem to dislike that. I like that that it's just a little bit of snark. Like because the whole movie is like it's a genre that especially at the time was oversaturated was self-serious was incredibly like self-important in a lot of in a lot of, like i don't i don't have enough context about the scene of 1947 to make that determination i, I guess i don't I, either I think the problem that's what i was actually is saying. that there are actually genuinely good jokes in the script so i feel like that could have balanced itself out okay. naturally so am i getting the vibe that 
there should just have been no narration Absolutely. in this movie, and it probably would have been better off, you do know, you think? That's that's how I felt about it last night. Um, I actually think that your argument is sound. Uh, I, I, like, I like that argument. Whoa, your, I, your glasses yeah. just fogged up as you went to drink coffee. That was very cool. Uh, <laughs> that's how glasses thanks. work. Yeah, it was cool. Um, I wear glasses. I don't know why I was surprised by that. Um, but but I, I actually really like the idea... Um, that maybe this movie may or may not be going for. We don't have to discuss uh, authorial. Intent. We don't have to discuss on a podcast. Uh, but but I re- because the the first act of this movie is so much about framing the movie within like cinema verite mm-hmm. terms, where it's like no, like this is the real shit. Like like look at these these buildings. Like this is the naked stone and glass of New York City. You're going to see these people unvarnished by makeup or pretense. Like you're seeing, yeah, right. <laughs> you're seeing you're seeing the people in this city. And then there's something very funny about taking the piss out of that idea um, so pointedly throughout the movie. And it's funny how the narration functions as like a needle poking a hole in a balloon, right? Be- like it, because it it flits in and out of the narrative. There will mm-hmm. be 10, 20 minute stretches where there is no narration, and then suddenly Mark will reappear. Usually during like a montage sequence. Now, now, Halloran. Literally, <laughs> it's and just like remember him, remember this guy. And literally, I just, like, to make I fun my of head back because he's just so fucking cheesy and goofy in the back. But I, I love it. But it it so obviously subverts and completely de- deconstructs its own uh, ostensible um, goal. Mm-hmm. Like, the goal it sets up is you're supposed to be so enmeshed in this narrative. You're supposed to be so close to the ground. And this narrative, this narr- narration totally functions to do the exact opposite. He, he is like an agent of chaos for this pretty cleanly put together and, plot. And like, Nick, like the point you made, like, you're so not invested in mm-hmm. this movie. Like, I was so detached from all of the goings-on. I, like, I never forgot I was in a movie theater. I never forgot that what I was doing was watching a movie that I didn't particularly like. Right. Because, like, I was at such a remove from the narrative because I knew it was just a narrative because I kept being told, hey, remember, this is a story we're telling you. Like, this is not... Like this is not a uh, a plot, a work of fiction that we are invested in. This is something that we created to sort of forward this experiment that mm-hmm. we're doing. Um, and I, like it's it's interesting and it is novel. Like I've never seen narration function this way in a movie before, and it does feel experimental to me in that way. Um, I I don't think that it's of my sensibility. Yeah, I think it's just uh, like playing down to whether or not you actually like that thing. Maybe right? I'm not just too stuck up. Maybe I just, like, I didn't think it was funny because I was like, I actually, like, believe in Something. the idea of what they s- established at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, I kept thinking about, like, like Stray Dog is, like, often called a humanist movie, and, like, that's a movie that, like, it's it's so invested in its depictions of character. Like, mm-hmm. all of those people are, are, like, so deeply human. And character like, and world at the same time. Yeah, right? and they have, like, dreams and aspirations, and you can see where they came from and where they're going, and it's so, like, that's so beautiful to me. And then this movie is so, like, almost anti-humanist, where it's just like, look at how fucking stupid humans are, <laughs> and look at how stupid this city is. Look at how many fucking stupid people there are in this city. We're going right. to capture 10,000 of them in one camera shot. <laughs> I just... it's It's a very chaotic, like... Like you said, just a direct subversion of what the movie could be in any, on any other terms from any other director. Uh, I don't know any any of the rest of Jules Hassan's stuff, so I'll be I'll have fun listening to you guys' episode on brute force. Uh, Nick, you I want to dig into more of the stuff that you 
liked about this movie because it, it doesn't seem to completely jive with what I liked about this movie, and I'm really interested in where those things break. Okay, I like the movie because I do think it's kind of bad. In a way, that's enjoyable. Okay. There's a lot of stuff that did not work for me, but there's something about the... I, I don't know, I'm hesitant to say chemistry with the cast because there's not really chemistry. Uh, the performances, you know, the delivery of the dialogue, everything. It's just... Mm-hmm. It's so cheesy and over the top. I don't know. It just it works for me. It reminds me of like you know, turning on TCM at two in the afternoon, and you know, just watching whatever happens to be yeah, on. Yeah, totally, man. And there there is an argument that that is itself somehow deliberate, or even if it's not deliberate, it works into the narrative that you or the reading that you uh, suggest, mm-hmm. Jason. Where it's like there's something about the the hyper overacting and melodrama being depicted, especially juxtaposed to this omniscient detached narration that gives you the feeling of watching play acting of of something hyper unreal, like something sort of set up to make you laugh Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah I mean this is a movie where a mother (laughs) goes on a 10 minute rant about how much she hates her daughter and then after seeing her dead body just declares why couldn't she have been born ugly? Yo, so, this movie is yeah. a comedy. This movie is straight up a comedy. I, I think. I think this. I really this movie think is that they wanted to move you with that. Scene. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, okay. I well, because then they contrast. Like, they constantly those parents are about how evil the city is and how you know she should have just stayed home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're so, railing uh, against the city. They're railing right. against her. So then I don't think t- that's meant to be delivered in a way that's intentionally funny. Okay. I mean, again, like, it doesn't matter, right? Like, like your, I, I think that this is probably a quote-unquote alternative reading hmm. of Naked City. That doesn't matter, right? Sure. Like, like, whatever Jules Dessan's intentions were... He's dead. He's dead. The author is dead, literally. He was dead as soon as um, he put this movie out. Well, that was the producer, but oh. Jules Dessan is also, <laughs> I believe, dead. Uh, so fuck those guys. has to be. But, I, but I, what I'm saying is that, like, like I, I don't personally think that that was intentional. I, th- I think that that was supposed to be a moving scene, to be honest. Mm. Um, and it just fails because of everything else in this movie. Uh, but it's interesting that you think it could be deliberately funny. And, like, that's, a, that's an interesting reading, and it's, it's valid from that perspective. See, I, li- I, I was sitting next to Cody while we were watching the movie, and there were several times that I, t- like, looked at him and, and made a funny face or, like, said something that was... You make funny faces. I it's do. Good. Thank you. Uh and I thought it was understood by the whole group that this is this is like this is a funny movie. This is comedy. This is like comedy guised as noir. So like I didn't know that we had different feelings about that. I thought that I thought this was like I thought everybody was thinking this. It just seems like so plainly comedic and goofy. It, it was dark. I think I you're was... overselling. I think that there are so many moments in this movie where it's clearly not doing that. Where it's clearly like trying to make you like feel a different way. I had my head in my hands uh, for some of the narration. It was dark, um, and uh, I didn't want to sigh too loudly, but I was doing some of that, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we touched on uh, a couple of things, uh, most recently with um, Gene Dexter's mother, that um, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to say this is a res- result of the trip to the take mines, uh, but I just want to <laughs> stick on some of the good stuff here. Um, uh, I think... So this is a very, obviously it's a 
police procedural, um, and it's very male-driven. But I think the women in this film provide, if not like some of the best moments, maybe some of the best entire scenes uh, in the movie. Harry, you mentioned the um, the scene with the detective and the like the shop owner. Um, that was just like a good scene narratively, um, and she was also like I don't know, great in her role. Whether I can't remember if she's an actual uh, actor or not. But, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the scene with Jean Dexter's mother at the at the morgue, um, the line like "Why couldn't she have been born ugly?" got one of the biggest reactions from our audience. Uh, me too. Like, <laughs> whether intentionally hilarious good, or not, which is yeah. good evidence that it was supposed to be funny, right? Right. Because like everybody did react to that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, there's a scene with I believe the um, so the younger detective is uh, Detective Jimmy Halloran. Um, Halloran um, sounds right. That there was that scene where it's the little bit that we see of his home life. It's the one time we get to see, like, one of these cops not on the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he comes home to his wife. Uh, they have um, a great exchange where um, she may or may not be trying to seduce him into whipping their child. Uh, <laughs> you need to get that by a whipping. Well, yeah. and, she, and she's wearing this really seductive outfit. That like is ostensibly because of the summer heat, but she like she like sort of coyishly hides it from him mm-hmm. until she's right in front of him, and then they have this sort of like cute like flirtatious back and forth. It is very cute. Uh, it's the best scene in the movie. movie. Uh, but but yes, and the point of that like of of that uh, seduction is that his son went across the street by himself over to a park, and she wants him to be whipped now. Uh, and. Yes. Uh, there was, sorry, there was just an exchange I wrote down that I loved where, um, like, he has to go back out. Um, he tiptoes around disciplining his child. Uh, and he's like, you know, I got to go out. I'm needed. Uh, and she s- says something like, why can you have been an ice cream salesman? And then they're like, kind of like nose to nose, uh, like softly, lovingly talking to, to each other. And he goes, if I were an ice, if I were an ice cream salesman, I get fat, and you wouldn't like me. And then she very sweetly, very quietly goes, mm, I don't like you now. <laughs> it's great. It's hey, great. Hey, but like, hey, that's the best part of that movie, right? And like, yeah, it's that and the other scene. And those are the scenes where the movie gets the fuck out of its own way and actually tries to tell a story. And you and you think that those are little bastions of humor amid what's supposed to be a, a largely like serious story then? No, I, I, I think I read your I think I understand and agree with your reading okay. uh, of I this movie. I think it just gives well, something to the characters. Yeah. A, a reason to be remotely invested yeah, in like, one of them. There's not a lot of meat on the bones but we have, you know, some sides of mashed potatoes we've got some like mixed veggies here we're going to fill out this plate a little bit. <laughs> this is like, a fun like, metaphor. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm very just, hungry. We're going we're gonna to talk about brute force so maybe that's why I'm, I'm foregrounding my thinking this way but like maybe I'm just a dude who really likes sincerity mm. and like I, this is your reading of Naked City is deeply ironic. It's an like, irony bro. It's an irony take, movie yeah. and I fucking hate that. Mm. Like I think that, I think that it's, <laughs> no I mean I think it's cowardice. I think that like like the worst sincere movie is probably better than, than the a really irony. good, like ironic, shitty, cynical movie. Like I just like if you think you're so much better than making movies, than like telling stories, like why do it? Like why not do whatever the fuck else you're gonna do? Like no, I mean I can feel that. I just think like in all aspects of this movie's uh, concept and execution, I think from the very start it was like. Let's tell this story, but let's have this running thread of basically an audience proxy, uh, just sort of like how people might react to this story as it's going on. And let's put that in the movie. Let's get ahead of people who want to be ironic and jokey about this movie and actually just take it from them. Let's put this guy in the movie. Let's put, make the, 
wonder how the choice was made to put the executive producer in the role of narrator. Maybe it's just more of that, like, cinema They saw a lot thing, of uh, like Arrested Development, and they really liked the way that that worked, <laughs> and so they wanted to... This does remind me a lot of Arrested Development, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the Detective Valoran's like, ah, maybe I'll, maybe now I'll find the answers I'll need, and then Ron Howard jumps in. He wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very great, good. Great Ron, Ron Howard. Howard. Yeah. Wildly good Ron I was going to do a Ron Jesus. Howard, but that was way better, so I'm glad that you did it. I don't know how you did that. It's <laughs> uh, weird. Me neither. Are you Ron Howard? Be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. Early, he's early he career Ron Howard before Ron Howard became kind of a hack. Right. Wow. <laughs> I'm just making, uh, making enemies. Um, I think this film does have very fleeting moments uh, and scenes of sincerity. There's one scene in particular that made me forget that I was watching The Naked City, um, and ma- like made me think I was watching something that would more more so resembled like a traditional hard boiled noir. And that's when. And this also gives us a chance to talk about more of the characters. Um, there are two uh, like friends slash coworkers of Gene Dexter. Uh, Frank Niles and Ruth Morrison, who are engaged to one another. Uh, Frank Niles, I forget how he became, came to be a friend of uh, Dexter's, but he is, uh, throughout the film, like a, a liar about what he does. He's a petty thief, and he's just like a perpetual suspect. And then Ruth Morrison was a co-worker of Gene Dexter's. Uh, she's also a, a dress model, and the two of them are engaged. And there was uh, a scene in the, the third act, I would say, where they're having a, a conversation in the discussions to Niles lead up to this confrontation between him and and Ruth where he basically has to either confess to his crime of like stealing Ruth Morrison's engagement ring or saying that he got it as a gift from Gene Dexter and so it's this interesting conflict of like either like Ruth will be in shambles like she doesn't care that he steals uh just like please, for the love of God, do not tell her that Gene Dexter gave you that ring because yeah. of jealousy reasons. Um, I liked that interplay. I thought that they, like, and she played that really well, like getting back to like the strong female presences as few and far between as they are. Like I, she really emoted the shit out of right. that scene in particular. In that scene, she feels like a real character where yes. a lot of these, a real character. Don't. Yes. Yeah. yeah, totally. And, and often only briefly feel like real characters, mm-hmm. right? Because again, they're chopped and screwed by, the narration uh, into being more stand-ins yeah. rather mm-hmm. than, which is like maybe I don't know. I'm I'm thinking I've gone on quite a quite a journey of my take <laughs> on this movie. Thanks <laughs> to you, Jason. So thank you. But like I I wonder if <coughs> I still don't fully think I believe that this movie pulls off its satire as well as I think you probably do mm-hmm. because I I think that there are elements of this movie that are trying to have it both ways. Cody, like you kind of said, like because there there are elements of an actual detective story here that it's clearly invested in depicting, if only to make fun of. And there's some sense to me in which this movie is trying to be like, well, like if you didn't see the irony, like if you liked the story and you just were invested in the the police, we have that and that's great and it's okay. But if you thought it was stupid, actually we were trying to be stupid, right? It, like it's trying it's trying to like. It's trying to, like, get out in front of any possible interpretation mm-hmm. of this movie where, oh, if you like it generally that or genuinely, that's fine. But if you were ironic, like, we have something for you, too. It kind of reminds me of, like, like Marvel movies in that, like, Marvel movies just tell a traditional story. But then, like, in the first act, they can have the, like, wise guy be like, 
oh, this is so cliched or something. And, yeah. like, we're supposed to say, like, oh, okay, like, That's this forgiven. movie gets it. Yeah. Like, if I think this is stupid and trite, this movie understands that it's stupid and trite, so it's actually smart, and I'm smart. And, like, that's kind of how I felt about this movie, is that, mm. like, this movie really wanted to make me believe that I was smarter than the movie or something. Mm. And it was like, I don't need to have that kind of a relationship with this. Like, Yeah, as you're describing that one film's legacy that I thought of, uh, the whole, like, the, the revisionism factor of, like, we're making this movie seriously. Um, and even more so in this case, like, retconning after the fact and just being like, oh, uh, this was actually not meant to be taken seriously. Uh, the Room? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I just like... That... Take that damning example for yeah. what you will. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's the same vein, Yeah, like, is what Harry's saying. It's like, oh, if you like this movie, you get it. Right. If you hated this movie, That's you what get we were going for. Yeah. Right. I don't know. And, like, like that's... It's, it's kind of cre- gross to me, right? You, like, you wish that it would fall on one side or the other. Right, I guess, yeah, but but even that is sort of a weird, that's a weird take, right? Because like action action ability wise, like I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. Like I I don't think I want to make this movie more satirical, right? Like I don't think that the satire that works for you would work if it mm-hmm. was clearly like just nothing but really like bone stupid characters, which are, are already like I think that the the like the con man in this movie is like a pretty pitch perfect parody of a con man where like he he lies so boldly and then the moment they catch him in a lie he capitulates immediately he's just like oh yep you're right I'm a fucking circus clown at, <laughs> at uh, one point he says that he's like oh I'm a clown I'm a, I'm a heel you got me and it's like alright <laughs> uh, the actor who played uh, Niles the character you're referring to is Howard Duff he was also in Brute Force uh, Brute Force and the Naked City are his first two film credits uh, so shout out to Howard wow. Duff yeah. he, uh, was he was great also listed as a communist Subversive, hell yeah! And was, a staunch, and was a staunch Democrat. Is so. Howard Duff a, a real one? It seems like he's a real one. <laughs> Howard Duff, but, come but, on but, the if pod. You, but if you ask, he's him, also are James Marsden. If you asked him, are you a communist <laughs> or were you on the list? He'd be like, No, I wasn't. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm a heel. <laughs> I'm a heel. By All right, I'm a clown. Definitely 1948. Uh, how did you guys feel about the the climax of this movie? Uh, we're talking about the scene where um, Garza runs up to the top of the bridge, gets shot, and yeah, falls. Yeah, he's caught, and he has to escape on foot, which he sort of escapes through the city. He ends up on a large suspension bridge, starts climbing up it, and then he's shot and falls off the bridge. It feels... That scene... Um, it felt like the rest of the movie did in that it was it was getting ahead of audience expectation. Like, you'd expect sort of the vertigo thing where he climbs all the way up, and the cops got to chase him all the way up there, and then it's going to come down to the wire. But... As soon as Halloran starts to chase him up, his uh, was it Lieutenant Muldoon? Yeah, Lieutenant Muldoon says, "Don't, don't worry. He can't go anywhere from up there. Like, stay down here. Why would you go up there after him? He can't. Like, he has nowhere to run." And then they just try to like talk him down and talk him down, uh, and it just really drives home the cheese for me in that scene where uh, he's. I, I assume this was also filmed on location, but maybe not. Where uh, Garza, he's shot in the arm, so he's kind of flagging as he goes up the stairs, and he stops to lean one second, and you just see this beautiful skyline shot of New York City, and then the music just swells, and there's all sorts of timpanis and drums just booming at the same time, uh, and then but it's like framing on this bedraggled shot uh, acrobat wrestler criminal uh, who's you know climbing his way to his death basically because he doesn't intend to surrender. Uh, 
so that it carried it carried the vibe of the movie through for me. The very like, especially the lead up where he's running yeah. and and the narrator keeps like mocking him, being like, "Oh, you better go faster, Garza," yeah, or like, "You better stop like, and look at a tie. You don't yeah. know if you're being shadowed. You don't know if you're being shadowed." And like, there's a dog, and it's like, "No, Garza, don't freak out. It's fine." <laughs> and then he shoots the dog. Yeah, yeah. He does shoot the dog. Which so sucks. as he's that coming out of the subway, he runs into a blind man with his guard with his guide dog, and uh, the guide dog takes him as an enemy, and he starts biting Garza. Smart dog. Really smart dog, very good dog, uh, and he just too smart for his own good. Dog, yeah. Uh, I I liked I liked that. I I did too. It was interesting, uh, especially the very end where it occurred to me, uh, and the movie points out itself. The climax has already ended, Mm -hmm. but then it keeps going, and so we get a weird like anti-subverted climax where like. Like, Garza's climbing, and the music is building, and he's climbing, and the music is building, and it's like, it's over. Like, the the movie is over, mm-hmm. right? Like, he's been caught. The police are down there. Like, they're just going to arrest or shoot him. He's already been shot, and he's dying. It's kind of like a parody to me. I think I read a description yeah. from, um, maybe it was a, I don't remember who reviewed it, but it was on Wikipedia, a quote from a contemporary review of it that said uh, it was like, it was building to a Hitchcockian climax, and to me, I thought this is like an exact parody of yes. a, a Hitchcockian climax, where like there is no imminent threat there. He has a revolver that he's like shot most of the bullets out of. Um, he's at the top of this bridge. He can only die. The, like you said, the movie's over, right? And the movie, I don't know. It, it feels like one of those nineteen forty eight things where maybe they like didn't have the discipline to shoot the scene well, but it's just sort of like, bah, he's dead, and then we're on to the next scene. <laughs> it was, well, that's also the very Hitchcock, right? Thing. It's, like, uh, it's like how Vertigo fucking just ends. It's like, <laughs> yeah. like you saw what happened, we're done. It's We're out. Uh, which, you know, uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of a funny and interesting climax, mm-hmm. um, and sort of more evidence for your idea that this is like point for point a parody of police procedural noir I stories. Think so. and, and it wouldn't be for me, it wouldn't be special if this movie came out in, like, the 60s or the 70s, but, it, like, this is contemporary with the movement, right? Like, having started in the 30, 20s and 30s-ish yeah. noir and having, like, earned and gained steam throughout the 40s and 50s, to see that this movie was being made and released, like, right in that milieu was, I think it's, it's an interesting period piece as well as, like, I think an effective farce. Yeah, it's a great, that's a really good argument. Um, I just like I think that it it lacks the strength of its convictions uh, by kind of trying to be a satire, kind of trying to be a police procedural mm-hmm. story, not actually having much to say about any of that. I th- uh, see, I can see that. And it in 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 lieu of having an actual point of view of its own, it's content to take the piss out of other points of view, mm-hmm. which is you know that's like it's mean. It's mean spirited and in a, just devoid of like, in my opinion, like a lot of worth. Like I, I don't know that I see a lot to take away from like, except like, like affecting this sort of better than you, uh, superior point of view, uh, which is in my opinion uh, of limited worth. Right. Oh, uh, there were two things about the last five minutes or so of this movie that just bugged me for silly reasons. Uh, when uh, Garza shoots the dog. Um, like that's the giveaway that like the police have no idea where Garza is. And then they hear the gunshot 
and they start running towards him, but so does everybody else. <laughs> everybody else in the city well, starts running towards the gunshot. Well, maybe they were like real New Yorkers who just wanted to follow what was going on. Maybe that's like maybe an, that's a funny motif too, because like everybody's <laughs> in everybody's business in this movie, yeah, which true. is pretty funny. It reminded me of uh, the scene in Happy Gilmore where they're chasing Shooter McGavin, who's got the <laughs> jacket. It's just like everybody in the area. Uh, shout out to Happy Gilmore. Love oh, references. God, God uh, I love movies. The, the other, <laughs> the other bit with um when he's climbing the ladder and he kind of re- stops at a point um Muldoon says something like you know we're we're all impressed by your your acrobatics guards oh, we that- give you 100% yeah, 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 it's, yeah, it's, it's like, like what is that like, what does this follow Acro- acrobatics all he did was climb a ladder you gotta I imagine, can climb a ladder you got to ma- imagine how much fun Mark Hellinger was the name you got to ha- imagine how much fun he was having doing this cuz he had to like he probably was literally riff tracking from a script, like while he was watching the final cut of the film, right? I wish. Like, imagine. I that. doubt that, but uh, it would be amazing if, like, if this movie was literally like MST3K, it would be really funny. I don't think that it would have been off the cuff. Just like again, very plainly, I don't think that it was off the cuff yeah. narration. There were some very like prescient things that are said, but I like I like to envision a world where Mark Hellinger is like alone in the studio, headphones on, mic in front of him, script and timestamps, and he's just booming that, I mean, out. I think it's very funny. I think there's a difference between that narration and riffing. You know, yeah, right, right, yeah. It, so it's sort of in the same spirit where it's like, hey, audience, you are supposed to be invested in these characters, and I'm going to berate the both of you at the same time. Right. I am like the omniscient. There are I'm there are God. some really like, in my at the time, I found them like incredibly grating, uh, but in hindsight, are probably pretty funny moments. Oh yeah. Uh, the first of which is when um, the new detective is looking out over the city at when he arrives at the first scene of the crime, and he literally just looks out over the city, and like there's a long shot where he's looking out, uh, and you see the skyline, and he's sort of looking pensive, and you understand what it is as a visual metaphor because you've seen a movie before. But then Mark says, "Well, there's your city, detective." Take a good look. The answer's got to be down there somewhere. And it's like, yeah, okay, like I got it. Like, thank you. Uh, and then the next one is when they post like a notice. And do you remember what the notice was? Oh, it was about the description for yeah, the just Philadelphia like Police. Looks it, like. it just shows the full notice, and you can. It's clearly legible, and you can read it. And then about a, a half a beat, like two seconds after they start showing that. Mark just reads it to you from start to finish, and it stays on the screen for like 30 seconds while Mark fucking reads it to you. And it's like they didn't think I could read. Well, hey, In case you're a stupid idiot, con- here's cons- what this says. Consider that, like, actually early cinema did that, didn't do that a lot. It, like, would present things written on screen, and you would have to read it. There was no diegetic reading of it. But, like, what's the last movie you watched where somebody's reading a letter and they weren't also reading it aloud kind well, of thing? And, and, like, it turns uh, about a third of the way through the letter, it turns from their voice into the voice of the letter writer. Right. <laughs> Which you understand because you've seen a movie yeah. before. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the increasing himbofication of, um, of American <laughs> cinema. It's, it's really it's despicable. Mark Hellinger, the original himbo. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, the, we're about to do a podcast on the original himbo, Burt Lancaster. Oh, my God. The actual I really himbo. need to watch this movie. Uh, anybody else have lingering thoughts? Um, people in the audience at the trial on during our screening clapped uh, for Naked City. They did not clap for Brute Force, and that is an injustice. <laughs> yes, I agree. I mean, there were also a lot more people in the theater for Naked City. An injustice. Uh, 
I will take again my hardline stance against clapping in any movie theater. Same, um, same. Unlo- absolutely. Un- unless there's somebody presenting the movie or like they it's were somebody's old. movie. You Don't know, it. it's fine. It's old. Um, I <laughs> just old I, I think, that, the I think clapping at the end of a movie is fine. It's fine. By it's communal. It's it's like clapping when a plane lands. <laughs> that's a bad take, but that's your cool That's also bad. By my measure, yeah, the, the, the you're clapping for somebody for doing their job. Yeah, <laughs> hooray, we didn't die. You guys just don't tip at the end of uh, like oh, a I'm restaurant to either. Is that that's not. Not even close to the same thing. I think I think it's pretty much the same thing. I think I made a really good point. And I think think you guys are are you equating applause to money? I am, yes. Oh, so it's you've so made, so so you've made your hill out of sand, yeah, shoveled it together, correct. and you're going to stand atop that hill. Sit underneath <laughs> it. Um, uh, the, by my measure, the most naked person in the naked city was Garza when he was working out near the end. Uh, I didn't see a whole lot of nakedness. Yep. Well, of course, there's the outfit that um, Halloran's wife is wearing. Which on, the, which on the naked scale is closer to naked than most of the outfits. Right, but it's still like a pretty conservative bathing suit type thing. Um does that sound about right? The most naked person in the naked city? Yeah. By the the naked scale coming soon to the Tri Love Shop. <laughs> Garza was the naked city all along. It's alone. Garza's head at one end and Halloran's at the other. Mm. He's like he never has anything. You know, he, he doesn't, doesn't even roll up his sleeves. He could be naked. Mark Halloran could be in that studio that you were just thinking about. <laughs> oh just god. But fucking buck ass <laughs> naked. Per- perched on yeah. a revolving chair just <laughs> You better find out, Garza. <laughs> I'm the naked city. <laughs> uh, I love that Halloran, who's been extremely dumb up to that point uh is dumb enough to go to the known apartment of a wrestler acrobat and harmonica player alone the most dangerous (laughs) combination imaginable and he just sort of chills in his apartment for five minutes before garza finally reveals that yes i know you're a cop and i'm going to break your arm and then he rabbit punches him and garza alone in his apartment because he had just incapacitated he had just knocked out the only person who could hear him says that was a rabbit punch, Kappa. And it's strictly illegal. Strictly illegal. <laughs> <laughs> he, he just has I a one-liner that he that. like had like planned, and he just says he it alone. He had to feel good about himself. Which, you know... Like, you can't I, mock him for that. There was another He's really good line. Oh, the, like, the worst line the, the Irish cop says, where oh, when the God. doctor tries to jump out the window, he goes, I'm oh, not God. a doctor, beat, and I don't know a lot about medicine. But I don't think that that particular dis- uh, prescription has ever cured anything. And it like it takes like three hours. And it's like <laughs> Jesus. I knew what he was going to say when he started talking. It's like did you just say it. Oh man. Other than that exchange, the Irish Lieutenant Muldoon was he grew on me. By yeah, the he's end like of this. the best part. It's kind of like yeah. stage fright, where like there's there's like a super character actor yeah. who's like such a character actor. It almost like detracts from like the actual story yeah. but it doesn't matter because they're having so much fun and they're yeah. so good at the, it that it the scene with the old uh, senile lady who shows up to give her oh, yes. advice yeah. I, mean, that, I, I really liked that scene like that's it's that was, goofy that it was, was a little it was yeah. a little mean, I love that but, like, scene it's yeah. funny I also hated that scene yeah. for the same reason because I thought it was like deeply condescending it oh, it like, is. oh it's so funny to make fun of mentally ill people like, yeah. holy shit oh my god it's so funny that there are mentally ill people in New York was mm-hmm. she meant to be mentally ill because I feel like there is you know there are those people where just there's very, like a big case happens and just like, very old yeah, and, and senile I believe yeah you're sweet Bye now. That was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we should have just ended on that. Uh, we'll do it again. I, I, we'll do it again. I, I, have a, I have a different way to end. Oh. Um, are we ending now? Wait, wait. Well, we can end more are you gonna go? I think I know what you're going to do, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, are we ending? This is so good. Uh, thank you for listening to Try Love. Uh, my name's Jason. Oh, I'm Nick. 
Nick is Nick is our special guest, but he's sitting next to Jason, which it's, is why we're sort of having him go second. And but, it's been like three or four episodes you've been on? Uh, the next one will make six. Yeah. So oh have my I God. guessed the most? Uh, I think you've maybe guessed it more than Aaron Grossman. Uh, like regular on this podcast, ostensibly. Calling him out. Yeah, he's that's not right. even in the state. He's not even you. here. <laughs> that's right. I could make fun of him. I'm Cody. I'm Harry. Uh, we'll see you next time. There are 8 million stories in the Tri-Love City. This has been one of them. Mm-hmm.